Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake. I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Welcome to our 50th episode. I can't believe that we're already halfway to a century of Leadership Hacker podcast. So thank you, everybody who's been part of that. So Bill Flynn is our special guest on episode 50. He's the chief catalyst at Catalyst Growth Advisors. He's over 30 years experience working with hundreds of different companies, including lots of startups. But before we get a chance to speak with Bill, it's not the Leadership Hacker News. Instead, today, we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to introduce you to Germaine Pinto from our production team. And Germaine's been absolutely inspirational to help us on our journey with these 50 episodes. So, hey, Germaine, say hello to our listeners. Good day, listeners. Nice to meet you all. I'm really excited. And Steve, congratulations on that 50 episode. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. And for those of you that are not familiar with Jermaine's accent, he's in Jamaica, and that's the wonders of the remote world that we work in. We can have remote team working all over the place. So Jermaine, I just wanted to say from my perspective and behalf of the listeners, thank you for being part of our team on this journey. And over the course of our 50 episodes, there must be a few of those episodes that really ring a bell and and there must be some learning as I've had out of this. But from your perspective, what would you say has been the best part of being involved in the journey that we've been on? It's always hearing the guest stories, their background stories. Those are always interesting. Those are always motivating, especially some who have started from basically nothing and build their way hope. Some who have accomplish a lot and still manage to start back over no matter their age that's always great to hear yeah the backstories really fascinate me because yeah. there's been no two guests right that have had the same backstory exactly they come from different backgrounds different experiences and they all bring great learning and inspiration to others to get on that journey too right yes correct so who of the 50 shows has been the most inspirational for you i have two right here steve and before i introduce the second one my first one would be you steve. oh jermaine you're such a softy thank you so much <laughs> <laughs> steve i have to say thank you so much for allowing me to be a part of your team it, it was actually March the 3rd, 2020, yeah. you you reach out to me to do episode two with David Marquis. Yeah. Yeah, I remember, and that was an amazing episode. And since then, I have been on this journey with you. I know it's 50 episodes. Oh, that's amazing. It is, yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that, man. You're welcome. And the second one will have to be Michelle Box, the blonde fixer. Yeah. She is just so vibrant. She's just so cool, energetic. 
And I just love her. Yeah, good. Yeah. So what about you, Steve? Wow, you know, like you, Jermaine, trying to find two or three people out of the over 50 guests that we've had on the show, really tough, right? Mm. But there are three that really stick out for me. So uh, I guess in order of episodes, episode 29, a good friend, Eric Chasen. You know, this is a guy who lost his fiance tragically. Subsequently, his mum passed away. All the while, his businesses were collapsing around him, but managed to find that, you know, real grit, resilience and determination and get back not only to be successful, but to be a millionaire and retire incredibly early. That was a great, great inspirational story. Amber Hurdle, episode 40, teen mum to superstar businesswoman yes. and podcaster herself. Another great inspiration for anybody who listened to that. And I guess the, the one that really kind of moved me emotionally, actually, was Nathaniel Zabrug. Agree. He was on episode 30, right? So this is a guy who has has suffered much more than most of us would suffer. You know, he was told by his practitioners he should have been dead six times over. And still to this day, whilst he still suffers with chronic illnesses, still inspires and works and inspires others to change their lives. And I think, wow, what a what a great guy. And And, and that's all, you know, coming from a place of helping others and i think it's just amazing yeah you're right steve and i and i can tell the listeners that i'm actually one of the the biggest fan of the show i look forward to hearing the stories every week uh most episodes i will listen up to three to four times to be honest yeah and you know fortunately we get to hear all of these stories before our listeners do so we're in a really privileged position to to get all that learned. that's always a plus yeah so if you think about how many hacks we've had on the show we've had hundreds and hundreds of fabulous ideas and tips and tools and inspiration if you had to kind of maybe think of one or two that resonate with you the most Jermaine what would they be I actually have three go for it and I'm going back to my favorite person again Michelle Box, the blonde fixer, when she said, facilitate feedback from your teammate. She's 100 spot on with that one. We can all relate to that. The second one would be from episode nine, John Spence. Yeah. When he said, lead with your gut. Yeah. You can never go wrong with that. Absolutely. Yeah. And John was another inspirational guest too, wasn't he? This is a guy who reads over a hundred books a year and has done for 20 years. Honestly, I was yeah. blown away by that. A hundred books. I'm like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. This guy's on top of his game. Sure thing. And the last one would be from Ira Wool from episode 49. Growth mindset. Throughout the almost 50 episode, mindset was one thing that was always said by most guests. Yeah. Mr. Wolf expounded on that and challenged, new, try new things. Don't be afraid to fail or make mistakes. And he's absolutely right by that. Yeah, I agree. And so, Steve. I know you pretty much have a lot of hacks. So what would be your maybe best three? So I've gone back over my notes and I've gone back over the show notes. And there are three things actually that present themselves where they keep repeating from many guests time and again. And there are also things that I share. So I guess the first thing is journaling presents itself a lot, doesn't it? So, you know, taking that time in the morning at the night to really set out what your plans are for the day, how you can be thoughtful, how you can demonstrate gratitude and self-love and self-worth. That presents itself a lot. Yeah. Meditation, you know, is interesting. That keeps coming up. And it's something that I do every morning. So I meditate every single morning before I look at emails, before I look at work, before I look at anything. 
And, and that's now a core habit of mine that is a key tenet in how I do things. A lot of our guests share meditation as a way to get into that zone. And the other thing that presents itself is mentoring. All the while we've been speaking to our guests, having a good mentor, having somebody they can rely on, having somebody they can kick the leaves around with is a real core attribute of all of our guests and anybody who's been successful. And I guess those are three things that really present themselves to me. And and I would agree with, especially the last one there, Steve, mentoring. I have never have a mentor till you could say no, which is, again, you, Steve, those one-on-one meetings that we have and where I would bounce, bounce idea of you. It's really great to have someone that you can share with and you can also get their experience. You're right. You're absolutely right. So Jermaine, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for being part of our journey and behind the scenes and not often getting the recognition I think you deserve. And hopefully our listeners will listen into this and connect with you through LinkedIn and your other mediums as well. So here's to the next 50, right? And let's say you're to an thousand. Wow. Yeah, why not? Absolutely. Let's think big. That's how big we are going with this one. <laughs> you're right. OK, so let's get back to the show. This hasn't been the Leadership Hacking News. But of course, as always, if you do have any insights, news or stories you think our guests could hear, let's get in touch with either me or Jermaine Maman. Our special guest on today's show is Bill Flynn. He is the chief catalyst at Catalyst Growth Advisors. He's a coach, mentor and author of the number one Amazon bestselling book, Further Faster. Bill, welcome to the show. Hey, Steve, great to be here. You know, they say good things come to those who wait. So it's uh, it's good to finally uh, make this happen. Our listeners won't know that you and I have been waiting for probably four or five months to be able to hook up and get together, having spoken originally. So looking forward to having a great conversation with you today. But for those that don't know your backstory, maybe just give us a little summary as to how you've arrived at leading Catalyst Growth Advisors. Sure. Um, I'll do the quick version. So I, uh, I sort of had two arcs to my career, if you will. I'm a startup guy early on. I'm not a founder, but I'm generally the, the person who comes in and um, helps on the scaling side. So sales, marketing, that kind of stuff. I did 10 of those from 1991 through about 2015. And depending on how you count my contribution, I'm either five for 10 or five for seven, because there are three I left. Um, but uh, um, and either they went out of business or, or, or actually, I think all of them went out of business. <laughs> Uh, or got acquired by someone else. Uh, and then uh, around 2015, I, I sort of said, what do I want to do? I, I had an opportunity to really reflect a little bit. I, I think I was just in my early 50s. And I had an experience at one of the one of the um, startups that allowed me to basically become a coach, not knowing it at the time, of course, because I wasn't smart enough to know that's what I was doing. Right. But uh, I, I really remember that experience. And I, and I kind of said, how do I get more of that? I wanted that feeling of really being able to teach people how to fish, so to speak. So I looked around, I, I, I looked at, I don't know, six or seven different kinds of methodologies, if you will. And I had sort of made my own um, in that experience that I mentioned earlier, but it wasn't, I didn't really have the confidence since I've never really been a CEO or a founder uh, I wanted to have something that I could feel could sort of backstop me and my credibility. So uh, I, I picked one out of all the things that I that I looked at and began doing that around uh, middle 2016. It's really when I went at it. I had to go through certification and all that kind of stuff and learning and such. Um, and I've been a coach for four, four or five years. What I would do as a coach, I'm a leadership team coach. I don't do executive coaching necessarily, although it sort of is an offshoot of what I do. And what that means is I teach this framework, which I've modified a little bit from my experience and my, my research. But basically, it's a framework on, on three things, which we'll get into a little bit of my book. 
um, of how to really build a healthy and thriving organization. There is, there is a way to do it, and it's been done over and over and over again, yet most people don't know how to do it. We, we, we do it differently, and the, the stats show that the way we do it isn't necessarily the best way to do it. So I'm, I'm about teaching people how to do that. So that's sort of my backstory. Awesome. And given the environment that we've been in over the last 12 months or so, how have you seen the rollers, leaders, and teams change from your perspective? Uh, I don't think they've changed that much, at least uh, on how you should be a good leader. And, and we should probably describe leader because people have different definitions of leader. To me, a, a leader is someone who has followers more than anything. It's not mean doesn't necessarily mean you're in a position of authority because that's different. You can be you can have authority and not be a leader. Leadership is. I'm a big fan of Marcus Buckingham and actually Goodall and a bunch of other folks. I'm a bit of a contrarian. I don't actually think leadership is a thing. I know it's a 15 billion dollar industry around the world, but there's no real definition of leadership that's the same. Everyone has their own version. I agree. But the thing that I've found, there are two or three things that I've found that permeate and, and, and really flow through all of those things. One is what I mentioned is if you're a leader, you have followers and followership is really, I think, the thing. And followership is something that is voluntary. It's given. You can't say, I'm your leader. People have to say, you're my leader. I choose you to be my leader. I choose to follow you. So you have to give them a vision, a compelling vision, right? Because if you want to have someone follow, you have to say, here's where we're going. Follow me here. And then lastly, I think you have to have courage. And that's the only attribute that, you know, they say humility and integrity and charisma and all this stuff. And, you know, I, I looked at that stuff and it's really different across leaders. You know, Gates is different than Mullally is different than Jobs is different than Balmer is different than Adela. They're all different. You know, Buffett's a different kind of leader, but they're leaders. People follow them for some reason. And But I think you have to have courage. You have to have courage to be able to, give up, right? Make it about them and not you and risk some of that. Uh, you also have to have courage to follow that vision. A lot of people are going to tell you your vision isn't right. <laughs> you have to have courage to do that. There's a lot of things you have to do. So I think those three things really make a leader. So if you do that as a leader, then I don't think it matters much except the platform that you have on how you use it. If you communicate well and, and you make it about them and you care about these folks and you and I talked to uh, you know, previously about really great leaders in the pandemic and what have they done? They made it about the other people and they they said, look, I don't know everything. I'm going to gather information, and, and but we're going to keep you informed. I'm going to make it so it's simple for you to understand. I'm going to tell you where we're headed, and I'm going to ask you to sort of follow along. And, and those that did a really good job at that did a much better job so far in controlling the virus with COVID-19. And those people who didn't do that or aren't doing that, we're noticing it. And we're now saying, wow, you're not really as good a leader as we thought you were because we're we're in trouble and we've got stark differences across the world on who's doing a good job and who's not. So I think that's, that's what's, that's what's changed meaning we've seen it. Um, but I think those that are really good leaders haven't changed their style at all. They've been doing the same thing. They just, it's now noticed that it's, it's more effective. And like you, I think leadership is a behavior. It's not a, it's not a thing. It's not a job. It's just, it's the way that you behave to encourage people around you to feel that safety and that courage to come on a journey with you. Yeah. But if we think about those organizations that will survive for the future versus those that won't, what do you think the main reasons will be between the two? Ah, uh, cash. <laughs> I mean, that's really been, been apparent is that those people who have really understood how to generate cash or have cash in reserve have been able to do do things because if you have that, you know, cash is fuel. Most people, I ask them sort of, you know, what's the purpose of business? And they, and they all make it about money. And I said, it's not really about money, is it? I mean, cash is fuel for your business, but your business should be about something else. And you need the money to fuel the thing, right? You know, we don't buy cars to buy in order to buy fuel. You know, we don't... Um, 
um, get a house in order to heat it, you know, and, and have electricity or whatever, we, we, it has a, a larger purpose. And I think too many leaders um, and, and runners of companies focus much more on that. So I think, you know, your the ones that can come out of this really, of course, are are solving a problem we're solving. It's certainly, uh, it's more of a crucible now, right? That we're focused on just a few things. Those that were doing it already, you know, the, the U.S. stock market is is driven by five companies right now. That's it. You know, we go up and down based on Apple, yeah. Google, Facebook. Yeah. Um, I missed one. Uh, and uh, th- I think that's that's what we're seeing. If you, if you weren't doing that, if you're not empathetic and compassionate for your customers and really understanding what their struggles are, then they're just not going to pay attention to you because they're, pay atten- they're paying attention to so many different things right now. So those two things, you've got to have either access to cash um, or ways to generate cash so you can write out this stuff. Um, if you can't, then you have to be, I think, um, compassionate, like like Bob Chapman, who runs um, Barry Wilmeyer, who have several times, you know, through the 2008 cr- crisis, you know, he didn't, he, he lost 30% of his business, the entire group, and he could have laid people off and he never did. But he asked people to sacrifice for each other and, and they did, and then they actually took things upon themselves. So if you create that environment, that culture, that atmosphere, and you have the cash to be able to weather stuff like this, then you'll always be able, I shouldn't say you'll always, you'll, you'll have a much, much better chance of being able to survive things like this. Because this is, you know, this is horrible and it's different than the last two, but we've already had three crises like this in the last 20 years, right? We've had 9-11, especially in the US. Yeah. We've had 2008, and now we've had this. There's going to be another one. And statistics say every six to eight years, there'll be another downturn of some kind, of some magnitude. You need to be prepared for it. If you, if you can do that, then you'll survive most things. What do you think the reason is, Bill, in your experience, that leaders don't put cash in that same category as other things that they would maybe plan for and think about? Because we are enamored of growth. We are enamored of top-line growth. Revenue is vanity. And I'm sorry, but we are egotistic animals. And we like vanity. We like um, the social aspect and the emotional aspect of being seen as doing something important. And we measure and value revenue. And revenue is vanity. You know, there's a great saying, revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, and cash is king. Uh, and that's true. I think revenue is great for bragging to your brother-in-law or telling a reporter how great you've done. But if you if you see revenue as the financial metric to measure your success, you're picking the wrong one. And that's what you do. And then you say, oh, well, we need to grow. So we need to, we need to sort of take this risk with this money. A lot of the time it works out. But sometimes like this, it doesn't. And that's what you're seeing. A lot of businesses, unfortunately, going out of business for completely unique reasons to this pandemic. But many of them are going out of business because the light has been shown on them. Yeah. And we're seeing that they're just not very well run companies underneath. So your learning and your career and all of the startups and experiences you pulled together, you wrote the book Further Faster. What was the inspiration for the book? There were two things. There was an external inspiration, which were my coaching colleagues and friends and my clients. When I say stuff, they'd look at me like that it was different, right? They, they sort of said my perspective on things was unique to them. And I looked at it as, you know, my perspective isn't any different than anyone else's. This is all the stuff that you and I do are based upon people that aren't alive anymore. You got Drucker and Deming and Shine and all these guys. And now we've got, of course, Lencioni and, and Collins and Cynic. And, but we're just regurgitating the same stuff that's right. over and over again. There's, there's not a lot new here. So I was surprised. And I said, okay, well, that's interesting. And the second was internal, which is uh, I just, having been through 10 startups and, and, you know, that's just, it's almost masochistic, right? I just really found that it's a shame that really good 
people, really good leaders, really good businesses and really good ideas just fail or struggle for completely preventable reasons. There is a way to run a very healthy and thriving organization. There's some other factors involved, but it's been proven over and over again for, for decades, if not longer. And we just seem to ignore it. We go back to conventional wisdom and intuition and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all for intuition, but you, there's something called a gut check, right? It's fine. Go with your gut, but check yeah. it, make sure it's right. Make sure that there's data supporting what you're doing, at least in terms of the, the fundamentals of running your business. Uh, we don't do that enough. And the data shows it. There's two sets of data, at least in the U.S., that I've seen there are basically the same. One is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and one from the Small Business Administration. If you started a business in 1994, you had a 50% ch chance of making it to 1999, five years, 50%. It's like a flip of a coin. But if you made it to 15, there were only 25% of the people who did that. And if you want to get to 20 or 25, it's 16. So the longer you're in business, the less likely you're, it is that you're going to stay in business, which is just a shame. And I know people choose and they, they, they retire or opt out or, or whatever, but even if you took those out, I don't think the, that curve would change that much. And, and I want to do my best to help at least a small corner of the world that I'm in to not have that happen to them. Do you think that's complacency that causes that curve to narrow towards the longer period of time? Uh, there's a saying that one of the biggest reasons for failure is success, is that, you know, you think because you were successful before that everything in the future that you do will be successful. <laughs> and that's true. I've seen that. You know, this is called fonderitis in the startup world. And I work with lots yeah. of folks and yeah, they just sort of feel like they can do no wrong and trying to guess what a mass of people value and will pay you for, and then also be able to run a, an organization of completely crazy people. You know, we're crazy, right? People are nuts. People are impulsive. We're irrational. We just are. So be able to do that over and over again. Uh, if you can do that over and over again, you're pretty rare and thinking that just the way you did it before. Uh, is going to happen again is wrong because the mix is different. Every time the mix is different and you got to be able to work from first principles. I'm a first principles guy. If you can figure out your first principles and go from there, then you can sort of bob and weave and figure out as you go how to apply those principles. Uh, and, and we don't do that. We just, we put our head down and we work and we never look out. You know, we don't predict the future as much as we should. And I think that's one of the reasons why we just say, oh, well, I'm really good at this. And we get comfortable and we just keep making decisions. And we think because we're making all these decisions, we're the answer man that it's good. And it's not, you know, I keep telling my, my leaders, you need to fire yourself from the day to day. That's your job. Once you get through that knothole of figuring out and have some predictability and scalability to your business, you need to get rid of all your day-to-day -day work as much as you possibly can, because your job is to figure out the next two, three, four years, not the next couple of quarters. Yeah. In your book, you focus on this quite a bit around specifically the CEO or the boss must fire themselves from their day-to-day -day work. And it's a really interesting philosophy because I bumped into somebody just recently who has been a startup engine, if you like, for about three or four different organizations, but never been the CEO because they're just not great CEOs. But in the leadership space, what would be the reason you would encourage CEOs to think metaphorically around firing themselves? Well, so here's the deal, right? If you're going to grow your business, you have to predict the future. And predicting the future is about innovation and creation and, and insight. And so I asked this question, I'll ask it of you is, when do you get your best ideas, Steve? What are you doing? Well, daydreaming, thinking, walking yeah. at the gym, but not at work. Not at work. And actually, I would say you're not actually thinking. Maybe, maybe you're different than most, but most people, it's they're not thinking. They're actually letting their brain rest right. a little bit. And that's the walk or the shower I hear a lot, or I'm on a run. Really just doing something else. And then somehow this insight is called the edge effect in neuroscience, where all of a sudden a couple of different things that have been floating around in your brain connect. 
and they actually physically connect in your brain, which is just really cool. The whole biology of it is really cool for me. And you know, that there's exons and neurons and dendrites and they actually connect to each other. And then this idea comes into your head. It's just the coolest thing. And so if you're doing all the time, you can't do that. Your brain can't focus on more than one thing at a time. Multitasking is a myth. Most of us have learned that, right? It's called context switching. And you go from one to the other, and, and there's a whole issue around the degradation of that, which we won't get into. So I think you need to fire yourself in the day-to-day because you need to be able to have these thoughts that come to you. And you need so you need to gather information. You need to go out and talk to your customers a lot more. You need to sort of roam around the business and talk to people and, uh, and learn from outsiders, have an advisory board, and ca- capture all this information. So when that thing happens, that insight happens, you've collected all this data already, and then you start making these connections. And that figures out where's our business going? What's, what, what is this thing going to look like in the next two, three, four years? And you can't do that doing. I've been, I was a speaker at Vist, in Vistage for a number of years and I asked hundreds of CEOs the same question, which was, what percentage of time do you spend working in the business versus working on the business? And I would say the majority of the answers was 80% to 90% in the business and 10 to 20% on the business. And, and I said, look, if you're going to make sure that you're not guessing on a regular basis, you need to stop doing that. You need to flip that ratio. Yeah. So you're spending a lot more time working on things for the future, which, are, which with your two most important constituencies, which are your best customers, not all your customers, but your best customers and your top team, right? Your A, B plus and B players. Those are the people you're going to need to focus on the most. If you can do that, you'll put yourself in a much better position to be able to predict the future. You won't get it right every time, but we don't do that. We're, we got our head down. We, as I say, we, we look down, we don't look out as much. We need to look out a lot more. Got it. Now, you've taken the thinking of neuroscience and applied that to your work, and it's something that we both share a passion in, what's commonly referred to as neuroleadership. But for our listeners listening in today, maybe you could just describe what neuroleadership is. Yeah. So there's, I'll, I'll say one thing, but there's this great quote by Chris Voss, who I love. He's written a couple of books, and he says, all humans should accept that we are all crazy, irrational, impulsive, emotionally driven animals, where all the raw intelligence and mathematical logic is, is fraught. And, and when you have two people sort of interconnecting with all this irrationality and impulsivity, impulsivity and, and emotionally driven stuff, you know, you just have to understand that you have to know a little bit about how the brain works. Because it doesn't work the way we think it does. It fools us on a regular basis. We have supposedly 150 unconscious biases that are broken down into five major categories, according to the Neuroleadership Institute. And it's um, simplicity. So we bias towards the simple. We'd rather have a simple explanation we think is better than a a not simple explanation. Expediency, right? So whatever seems the fastest seems right to us. Experience. We're much more likely to dismiss science because our experience is different, even though our experience may be an anomaly or certainly biased by our own needs and wants, et cetera. The next is distance. We are biased to things that are more close to us than things that are far away. And then there's safety, right? Which of course is a, is a biological imperative. If we think we're going to die, we're much more likely to, um, or be hurt in some way, we're much more likely to believe that. That's why there's a negativity bias. So you need to, what's called lead with the brain in mind. If you understand that, then you'll understand that your job is to create the environment for people to use their brains, not to tell them what to do and take their brains out of the equation. Because you can have, you know, if you have 200 people in your company and you can have 150 of them actually thinking for you and helping you to move the company forward, it's way better than what normally happens, which is a handful of you. And that's it. And then you tell everyone else what to do. Jim Collins calls this the genius with a thousand helpers. And I think it's a great phrase. You can't do that. You have to be able to say, I'm the genius at figuring out the future. And because I love doing that, but 
you know, you're much better at marketing than I am. You're much better at this manufacturing thing than I am. Uh, I'm going to trust you, but I'm going to tell you, you know, sort of where we're going, what we're doing and work with you to figure out how you can contribute to doing that. I think that's what neural leadership means. You have to understand that we're all irrational, impulsive and emotional beings. Yeah. Love it. If you understand that, then you'll be more compassionate. You'll be more thoughtful. And I think you'll be able to see that this environment that you create is is much more important than trying to figure out the answers to to questions every day. You know, you know, I keep saying you should you should make one or two decisions a week as a leader. You know, we, we make dozens, if not hundreds of decisions a week. We, we shouldn't be making like, what birthday, what kind of birthday cake should we do for the person in our group? It's amazing. <laughs> the stuff that we decide is important. Yeah. It's very true, isn't it? You talk about safety as being one of those key biases. And a lot's been said about the whole principle of psychological safety, but it's an absolute key tenet of having the right behaviors so that you're thoughtful and compassionate to do the right things. So if you could give our listeners a crash course on psychological safety and how to create that culture, where, where would you start? So psychological safety is a term I believe was coined by Amy Emmonson. As yeah. far as I can tell, she's the person who coined it. She's been studying this for about 20 years, I think. So psychological safety is basically is, is this creating an environment so that the people that are around you, especially your team, feels like they can screw up, admit mistakes, come up with crazy ideas without the fear of retribution or ridicule um, or scorn from others, either directly or indirectly. And if you can create that environment where people can just be themselves and not feel like they have to guard every thought and make sure that they're, you know, they're not looking stupid to their team, then you've created that environment of psychological safety. And then once you do that, then the magic happens, right? That's when all the really cool stuff, all those ideas, you know, you don't have to be the only one who comes up with the ideas of where to go. You can, you can get them from others. And as long as you've created this environment and you've sort of put that roadmap of that vision of where we're going, then you'll recognize the good ideas because you're like, oh, that can actually get us. That's a better idea than mine. And that'll get us closer or that'll be a better way of doing something in your particular world because you know it better than I do. So you just need to create that, that environment. It's really an atmosphere that you're creating that people could really just be themselves. And then when, once we relax, again, back to that thing, once, once we can relax and we're not worried about how people think about us, you know, Simon Sinek calls us this, the second job of work, which is lying, hiding, and faking. And if we can el eliminate that and get them back to the main job of really helping the contributing to the healthy growth of the business, then you've done a great job. What do you think the reason is, Bill, that leaders don't embrace this enough? It's hard, right? Yeah. Is trusting someone else... <laughs> You know, we live in a world that we've, we kind of value that, right? We kind of value the knowing stuff. And we think that in order for us to be valuable, we have to be seen a certain way. And so it's all about your, it's all about winning for the person as opposed to winning for the team. There's this great story about a football team, an American football team here in a college football team here in the States. It's called Ohio State University. And they were in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, they were a juggernaut. They were just really hard to beat. They were always in the hunt for the championship every year. And then they started giving away these stickers and they call them Buckeyes, um, which is, I think is a nut or something. And they put them on their helmets, but they were for individual awards. And over the 60s, 70s and 80s, they started to get worse and worse. And then this guy came in, I think his name was Jim Tressel. And he said, you know, we've got to create this team atmosphere where we're sacrificing our own individual rewards for that of the team or our unit. And so he, he still used the Buckeye thing, but he, he only did it when the team or that unit on the field, when the defensive unit, you know, had a sack, everyone on the defensive unit got a, 
at a Buckeye. When there was a great play that was executed on on whatever, or special teams or whatever, everyone got a Buckeye. And then they started to become better and better. And they've now, they still do the same thing under, or I think it's Urban Meyer or someone is their coach. And again, they're back every year. They're in for the chance to be in the championship game. And actually this year, I think they're in it. And it's because they've created this environment of being, you know, team, you know, t- being a teammate is not being in a group. It's being part of something bigger than yourself. It's sharing the rewards and responsibilities, but also having each other's back. And when you can create that environment, it's amazing what, what people will do. We are tribal people. Let's leverage that, right? Leave with the brain in mind. Understand that we are tribal people. We want to work together. So create the environment so we can and in the utmost way. And uh, I think you'll you'll do a much better job as a team leader. And I, I do team leader in the, in, the, in the large scope, either if the organization, then you're a team of teams leader. And then if you're in a particular group, you have a team. Yeah. If you could teach people how to be really great team leaders. And I go into that a little bit in my book. And, and so does Amy Emmonson and hers called Teaming. And there are a few other people who talk about teams as well. You're just in a much better position uh, and you'll do much better. So I think that's sort of what we're dealing with. Love it. One of the other things that you focus on with teams is helping them really stretch their thinking about the art of what is possible. And you call these BHAGs or big, hairy, audacious goals. Yeah. So BHAG is a term that was coined by Jim Collins, made most famous by Good to Great. But I think he actually had it in an earlier book. But it really, since Good to Great was such a bestseller, uh, the term became a term of art. Uh, so it's over 20 years old. Yeah, it probably was actually. Yeah. Basically, it stands for Big, Hairy, Audacious Goal. And being a contrarian that I am, I don't actually think it's a goal. I think it's more of a consequence than a goal because goals generally have some sort of measurable time frame, et cetera. And the BHAG is sort of this thing that in the future, there's not really sure how you're going to get there, but this is how we would recognize it when we did. And that is, I think, sort of the, the culmination or the, the really the, the metaphor of the success, right? Of this vision that you have for the organization this is a way to describe it in very specific terms so people can recognize it. Hey, when we get there, we'll do this. There's a great company in Australia called Red Balloon, and they've been following this. They've been doing this kind of work for, for a long time. And their first BHAG, so they, they were an experiential gifting company, right? So you didn't give away physical things. You gave away you know, ballooning or jumping out of a plane or whatever. And they were tiny and they were in Australia and they were only in Australia. And so they said, what would, what would, be, the, what would be the best? Like if we actually were super successful, how would we know? And they came up with a numerical thing, which was they wanted to have 2 million gifting experiences cumulatively. And they were at like a few thousand, by the way, at the time. And there were only 20 million people. At the time when they did, there were only 20 million people in Australia. So they wanted to be 10% of the population would be doing that. And so a, a BHAG is a 10 to 30 year, according to, to Jim Collins sort of goal, somewhere in that 10 to 30 year yeah. time frame, we will do this. We don't know how we're going to do it, but, but this will be it. And they did it in eight years. And I think uh, on that eighth year, they pushed it up to 5 million. So if you give people that, right, this again, leading with the brain in mind, we love to have those, those targets, right? We love to, to be able to, to, to be able to also see and experience and, and sort of recognize today what's possible tomorrow because you've described it in such a vivid way. And the BHAG is a great way to do that. And we've seen lots of BHAGs over time. You know, I think one BHAG most people in the U.S. know is we will send a man to the moon and bring him home. Within the decade. That's right. And that was when we learned it on the moon. And that was that was a BHAG, right? That was, we didn't know how we could do it. We actually had to make up. We had to create you know, new metals and all sorts of things that we didn't have before in order to get there. So we had no idea how we were going to do it, but we said we were going to do it. 
and we put people on the task and human beings are wonderful, wonderful. If you give them something like that and if they have a passion for it and it's amazing the things that we can do and we just need to create that environment. And that's, that's what the BHAG does. It creates something that's tangible. And in reverse, of course, the biases you talked about are the things that stop us having the ability to think big, to move outside our comfort zone and to take those risks and to feel that psychological safety. So we need to pay attention to that in ourselves, don't we? As well as when we lead. Exactly. Right. And this gets back to sort of this growth mindset. And all growth mindset means is you understand the power of yet. The word yet is I don't know this yet. I can't do this yet. And there are some things that you can't do, but most things you probably could if you put the time and the effort and the energy into it. And you really had the passion for it and the love for it. We've seen this over and over again with people, especially, you know, just imagine so Lionel Messi, right? Which is probably the best soccer player ever. I mean, he had a great fundamental talent, but man, he put in a lot of time and effort and he practiced a lot, but he almost quit when he was 15 from Barcelona because they were trying to turn him into what they described as the ideal soccer player. And they wanted him to work more on his right foot versus left foot. And most of us know his left foot is just superior to his right and superior to everyone else's left foot as well. And they also wanted him to sort of stay in his lane and do his job, but that's not how he was successful, right? The reason he was really successful is he had a he had a left foot that no one could touch, and he was able to see the field in such a way that he would put himself in a position where the ball was going to be. So that means he needed the ability to roam. And they said, don't quit. They said, they said, look, if you want to have your left foot be the main focus and it's got to be the best left foot in the, in the game, let's focus on it. And they said, you know what? When you're on the field, we don't care where you are. Yeah. Just be dangerous. And that's what he did, right? And, and you know, in the story, he's now 34, 35 years old. And, and still dangerous. <laughs> still dangerous, yeah. I mean, yeah. he started when he was 15. He's imagine he's doing this for 16, 17 years. Uh, so, so I think that's a great metaphor for, for understanding being a leader, right? Is understanding the unique talents of each of your team members and then try to have them use those as often as you can every day, every week, every year. Um, if you do that, they'll be happier. They'll be more engaged. They'll be able to feel more connected, you know, et cetera, you create that psychological safety. That's why I think the neuroleadership thing is so important. Understanding the brain is such a huge factor in creating a great organization and, and being successful. I agree. So this part of the show, Bill, is where I get to hack into your leadership mind and pull on all of the years of experiences. Now, given all of the vast experiences you've had, I'm going to ask you to narrow down what your top three leadership hacks could be. Sure. I've got three. They're in my book. And basically it's this. It's, there's a meaningful gap between what science knows and business does. We've already mentioned this a little bit. You know, I say challenge conventional wisdom. For instance, we're told often to talk to your customers. And that's just wrong because... It's valid, but not sufficient, as I like to say, is you shouldn't talk to all your customers. You should only talk to your best customers, the customers who love you and who you love, because you want to get to know them so you can find the next one like them, because they're your most profitable. They're your best referrals and references in the business. Other things like our learning, we just more recently in the last 10 years, understand how the brain learns, yet we still go back to the old didactic model, right? Where the teacher stands in front of the class and fills you full of information. That's actually not how the brain learns. The, le the brain learns in a completely different way. And my last one is, is feedback. I'm just not a big fan of feedback. I just, I think feedback is a tool, but we use it as the thing, right? And to me, the thing that we want to do, feedback is a tool for growth, is to help others to improve. There's lots of great ways to help them grow. And feedback is one of them. And I think it's, it's actually one of the things you should use the least often, because there's this thing in, in neuroscience called reactance, right? Which is, and I'll put it in terms of masks, mask wearing. A lot of people don't wear masks just because they were told you have to wear masks. That's it. That's reactance. We're like, screw you. Don't tell me what to do. 
I know better. And we come up with reasons with freedom and CO2 is going to kill me or whatever. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll make up irrational reasons to support whatever we think is important. And that's the difference between science and just sort of conventional wisdom. And so I think if you focus on the science of business and understand that there are real first principles and how to build a great business, and we've seen it over and over and over again, and learn those and then see how they apply to your business and then and create methodologies to help you apply those principles that work for you. The second thing is few things truly matter, but those that do matter tremendously. Leaders do not spend enough time here. There are only a few things. And in my book, it's just three things, right? It's, it's create a great team environment. Performance is a team sport. If you want to create a, a business that scales in a predictable manner, you have to think in terms of systems and processes. Your business is just one big system made up of a bunch of small subsystems. And if you can understand how those systems work, you'll be able to tweak them as they go. And by the way, if you, if you fix one system, sometimes you break another one, right? If you fix the sales process, sometimes you break the delivery process because all of a sudden you can't deliver on time. If you, if you fix the marketing process, sometimes you break the sales process and so forth. Yeah. So figure out those few things. The last thing of my three is, so it's team, it's great it's a business operating system. And then the last is cash is, should be your primary financial growth metric. To me, those are the few things that truly matter in business. And you need to figure out how to apply those in your business. And then lastly is leaders, leaders rely too much on effort, luck, timing, and force of will to achieve, quote unquote, success. These do not scale profitably. At some point, you're going to run out of hours in a day and energy relying on yourself and a few people to make a business that grows to 100, 200, thousands of people just doesn't work. So those three things, meaningful gap between science, what science knows and business does, few things truly matter, but those that do matter tremendously, and leaders rely too much on effort, luck, timing, and force of will to achieve success. Don't do that. Awesome. Love that. Now, this part of the show we call Hack to Attack, it's typically where something's gone wrong in your life or your work. Indeed, it could have been catastrophic, but as a result of the experience, we now use it as a positive in our life or our work. So what would be your hack to attack? Yeah, so mine is, um, so I've been a salesperson since I was 22, 23 years old. And when I first became a salesperson, I just became a salesperson by accident, to be honest with you. I was lucky enough to have a very well-connected family member in the Boston high-tech scene, and he got me a whole bunch of informational interviews, and one of them hired me, <laughs> which is really cool. And they hired me as a sales guy, and I said, all right, I'll give that a shot. And they you know, they told me, here's what you need to be a good salesperson, right? You need to really know your product. You need to know it inside and out, and so on and so forth. And, I, and you need to be able to relate to customers and, and all that kind of stuff. And I was terrible at it, terrible. And But I did all those things. I'm, I mean, I'm generally a, a pretty smart guy. I'm pretty relatable. People, most people like me. And I knew my product inside and out, but I was not good at it. And I looked at it and said, why? Why is why am I not good at this? I have all the, all the things they told me to be good at, I am good at, but I'm still not selling. And I said, so there's got to be an equation, next factor in here that I'm not aware of. So I, I really studied and said, what is the essence of, of selling? And the essence of selling is helping someone else to make a decision. So I studied decision-making. How do people make decisions? And I, that's how I got into neuroscience 15 years ago, which is the brain makes decisions in a certain way. Yeah, And you probably know this, but maybe your listeners don't. When a decision is made, most often the emotional centers of our brain light up first. And they actually light up often before we're consciously aware of the decision that we've made. And some people call this a limbic system. There's a lot of controversy if they're really a limbic system or not. I don't really know, but let's call it that for sake of argument. So in your limbic system, in, in the decision-making system was designed before you re we really had language. So we actually make a decision on an emotional level and then make up the reasons after the fact. And once I figured that out, I became the number one or number two salesperson everywhere I went. Awesome. Yeah. It's like a superpower. Mm. Love it. And it's, it's ironic, isn't it? That 
all buying decisions are emotional first and then logical second. But m most salespeople start with their logical approach and features, benefits, advantages, when actually the emotional triggers are the ones you need to be focusing on first. Agreed. Yeah, there's this great theory called Jobs to be Done, which I love, which focuses on three things, which is the social, emotional, and functional aspects of decision-making in the buying process. And all three are a factor. Some outweigh more than others, and some are before the others, but they're, they're almost always the three of them in there or two or three of them in there. And if you notice, two of them are social and emotional, which are not something that we focus on a lot. And if you can really do a good job of that, you can actually create great products that you, knew, you never even thought you should make. And people, you know, a lot of the things that I, I, I do are talking to leaders and saying, helping them understand their future, which is really understanding how to create a strategy. And I ask them, why do people buy from you? And they basically say, because we're awesome, because we make great this, we make, do we do this? And I'm like, no, they don't. They don't really care about what you make. They care about what you do does for them. That's right. Not what you do. And if you can figure out how you make their lives better, how you fix a struggle or help them with progress, then you'll actually create products and parts of products and services that support that. But we don't do that. It's interesting stuff. Really interesting. Last thing we want to do with you today, Bill, is give you the chance to do a bit of time travel and you get to bump into yourself at 21 and give yourself cool. some advice. So mine is, and actually this is funny, Steve, I, um, I do this question a lot. I do an alignment question with my clients on a regular basis and alignment meaning that these are things that they learn about each other that maybe they didn't know. And this is one of them, which is if you go back in time, give yourself some advice that would have made your life easier or better uh, or accelerated, you know, your successors in some way. So I've been doing this forever. So I love this question, which is to me, it would be to embrace uncertainty and to eschew certitude. I was brought up in a household that having the answer was more highly valued than asking a question and being unsure sort of not being as comfortable. There's a saying, which I don't know if it's true, but I, I love it, which is that, you know, stupid people are always confident and smart people are unsure. I like that. And, you know, so you got to be, you got to be comfortable holding two opposing ideas in your mind at once or more. One or both may be right, depending on the circumstance. And sometimes combining the best bits of each may also be right or more right. And if you sort of keep that in mind, and but not get stymied by it, right? Because you can actually go into analysis paralysis. At some point, you got to make a decision. But I think if you can do that, you can say, embrace uncertainty. You know what? This decision might be wrong. And if it is, then we'll fix it. But let's go ahead. We've got enough information, we, you know, uh, as much as we can particularly gather. Let's just go with what we think is the best option. But know that we might be wrong, either by hiring this person or making this product decision or bringing on this partner, whatever it is. And then if it is, then we'll fix it because we've got all this wonderful environment we've created around the culture and values and purpose and all those kind of things. And we, we might find out that we're wrong and that's okay. Awesome. We'll, we'll fix it. Bill, I could talk to you for hours and hours. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our time together today. But for the folks that are listening who also want to continue the conversation with you, where's the best place we can send them? My website, which is catalystgrowthadvisors.com. And there you can find my email, my phone number, you can actually set up a book at some time with me. My book is on there. My book, uh, I give away for free on my site. As if you just want to download the PDF, you can certainly do that. I'm more about the message than the money. If you want to buy it off of Amazon, great. You can do it from there as well. There's a link to my to Amazon or Audible on my website, but that's it. So it's, again, www.catalystgrowthadvisors.com. We'll also make sure those links are in our show notes built so that folk can head straight over and connect with you from here. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it being on. It's been amazing having you on the show, Bill. I wish you every success. It's no surprise you have been so successful. Some fantastic foundations and some fantastic learning you shared with our listeners today. So we wish you all the best for the future. Thank you. Very kind. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. 
Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush, and I've been the Leadership Hacker. Bye.